Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power podcast, we're discussing China's interest and activities in the Arctic and how the international community has responded to China's growing presence in the region. The Arctic is undergoing fundamental changes that have profound geopolitical implications. Rising temperatures have melted Arctic sea ice, uncovering territories, shipping lanes, and natural resources that were once largely inaccessible. Many countries have identified the Arctic as a new frontier of economic, military, and scientific opportunities. Yet greater access has brought greater competition. In a 2019 report, the Danish Defense Intelligence Service stated that a great power play is shaping up between Russia, the United States, and China in the region. China identifies itself as a near-Arctic state and has indicated that it sees the region as having critical strategic and economic importance. China has long invested in Arctic research, and in recent years, it has incorporated Arctic sea routes into plans for a polar silk road within its broader Belt and Road Initiative. To discuss China's expanding involvement in the Arctic and assess its interests there, I'm joined by Dr. Anne-Marie Brady. Dr. Brady is a professor at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand and a global fellow with the Kissinger Institute on China and the United States Polar Initiative at the Wilson Center. She is also the executive editor of the Polar Journal. Her research focuses on Chinese domestic and foreign politics, as well as polar politics. Thanks for joining us today, Anne-Marie. Hello, Bonnie. It's great to be talking to you today. So when did China start stepping up its involvement in the Arctic, and, and what were the initial drivers of its policy? Well, the People's Republic of China has been keeping an interest in the Arctic from the early 1950s. There were Chinese scientists who joined Soviet scientists working in the Arctic. And also China signed the Spitsbergen Treaty, that's the Republic of China, in 1925. So both the Republic of China and the People's Republic of China had an idea of that the Arctic was an interesting and strategic location, uh, but they had limited resources to expand or to do anything there in the 1950s. And in the 60s, of course, you had the Cultural Revolution, but that was when the, the State Oceanic Administration was set up. And the State Oceanic Administration in China, they uh, deal with polar matters. There was a really steady grow growing of China's polar capacities from the late 1970s. And initially, their focus was Antarctica, because in the uh, by the 80s, that was when Antarctic nations were discussing the potential of exploiting Antarctic mineral resources, and there was a big negotiation of an uh, international instrument about that, which in the end was not ratified. But China's Arctic capacities really started to take off from, you could say really from a lot of countries from 2007 when you had that incident of a Russian submarine putting a, a Titanic Russian flag on the, the seabed on the Arctic seabed, that sort of was a bit of a push to the sort of steady development of, they said there'd been an interest, there was, and then there was scientific activities that was slowly growing. But things really uh, got going from about 2007. And so by 2009, when I first started doing interviews in China about China's Arctic and Antarctic policies, 
people there told me, well, you know, initially I was looking at only at the Antarctic and they said, well, yeah, we can talk to you about the Antarctic, but we're actually only, we're really interested in the Arctic at the moment. That's where all the action is. And that's been the focus for quite a while now because the Arctic is regarded from China's point of view as a place that has uh, a lot of change uh, underway in governance structures and a lot of opportunities there for China. China's ambassador to Norway recently maintained that China has three main areas of interest in the Arctic, uh, the scientific research, cooperation between peoples, including culture, and uh, investing in, in, in companies there. How would you describe Beijing's interests and objectives in the Arctic, and, and what is the role of the Arctic in China's overall global strategy? Well, I think the ambassador from Norway is being diplomatic, and that's what they that's their job. But um, I wrote a book called China as a Polar Great Power, and I researched it for over 10 years. It's published with Cambridge University Press and the Wilson Press. What I found from my um, reading of Chinese language documents, um, including a lot of internal government documents, is that the priorities of China's interests in the Arctic and Antarctic are as follows. First is security, and that includes traditional and non-traditional security. Second is resources, and a most broad notion of resources you could think of. Uh, Access to regions is also a resource. And the third is strategic science. And strategic science, I'm talking about things, for example, like global navigation systems, the China's Beidou Global Navigation System, which relies on Arctic and Antarctic ground stations to become fully operational. So those are the three priorities which come from uh, Chinese sources that say that security, resources, and strategic science are the top priorities of China's interests in the Arctic and Antarctic. And the role of the Arctic in China's global strategy? Well, when we t- when we think about China's interest in a particular region, we have to understand what China's interested in the region, but also how it fits in with their overall foreign policy. So I recently published a paper in China Brief, Jamestown China Brief, talking about China's uh, the role of uh, security for China's Arctic policies. And I highlighted the PLA's interest, the People's Liberation Army's interest um, and objectives related to the Arctic. So China's long been interested in, in developing a, a nuclear deterrence and a second strike capability. And when in 1959, this is one of the turning points, actually, you asked me about when China got interested in the Arctic. One of the turning points for China was 1959, the USS Gate appears above the Arctic ice. And one of the little frictions between Mazadong and Khrushchev is Mazadong said, right, well, we need a um, nuclear-armed submarine. Can you help us develop one? And, and Khrushchev said, you know, don't worry, we've got you covered. That's the Soviets is um, developing that technology. So Mazadong wasn't happy about that. And as I found from my research, China began its own rudimentary um, submarine program. And Xi Jinping has had a, a early involvement in this kind of project. So now as, as um, supreme leader, he knows more than most about um, how important the Arctic and Antarctic are. Because his first ever job was for Gung Biao, who was then Minister of Defence, who made a, a fatal choice to buy redundant technology submarines from the French, which were, quote, too noisy, they could be heard under the Arctic ice. 
And so he, uh, Xi Jinping was working for Gumbia then, and Gumbia lost his job um, because of that, and perhaps for some other reasons as well. So being able to get a um, nuclear submarine into the Arctic is an objective for China. Um, being able to have ground stations, as they already do, for the Beidou global navigation system in the Arctic as well as the Antarctic is really important for China because the global navigation systems of China, the US, GPS, and Russia's GLONASS are um, not just for civil purposes, um, but they also have a very important military role for missile timing and positioning and C4 ISM. So that's just one of a, a number of reasons why China sees uh, the Arctic as, as really important from a strategic point of view. And they have the capabilities now that they didn't have in 1959 and they didn't have in the 1980s, but in the 1980s is where we see the change in China's overall maritime strategy. The um, the then Minister of um, Defence, so later after Gumbiao, he began this new, they threw out the Soviet model, the view on maritime affairs, which rejected Alfred Mahan, who's a famous US naval historian who talked about what a rising um, power needs, develop a blue water navy, to protect your heart, your um, sea lines of communication and have privileged access to resources. So China has been, from the early 80s, very much following the Mahan line. They just didn't have the resources in the 1980s to do anything about it that they have in the present day. So the Arctic is part of an overall strategy on the maritime, the importance of the maritime for China, and also in this global strategy to get Beidou up to uh, on a par with U.S. GPS system. So how are other nations uh, responding to China's growing presence and involvement in the Arctic? What are the trend lines? Is there much divergence? Uh, are, is the level of concern growing pretty much uh, across the board? Is there is there interest in collaboration with China? How would you describe it? I think that there's been, um, that China's done quite a good job of having that track to discussion about their interest in the Arctic. And the Antarctic. So you would know, Bonnie, that when you're researching China, you've got to read both the Chinese language materials that are meant for a domestic audience, as well as the English language materials that are aimed at the foreign audience. You've got to know what you're supposed to know and what you're not supposed to know. But the people who, you know, being an Arctic specialist, you have to know about foreign policies of eight different nations, and you also have to know about Arctic governance. And then to add on that, Chinese language skills. Well, there aren't uh, many people like that. So the problem for governments who have been trying to understand what China's intentions are on the Arctic is that they've been taking at face value what they've got out of the very few ministerial-level statements. There was an Arctic white paper which was was missing crucial details, for example, on security interests or what appears in China Daily or Beijing Review. That's what you're meant to know. But you uh, really need the, China is not transparent about its intentions in the Arctic or the Antarctic, and so it's taken my book, China as a Polar Great Power, has been invited to speak on it to to lots of governments, and they've been looking at their policies. But in the light of that information, where I've documented a lot of stuff from Chinese sources, but the thing that really concerns me actually is I'm seeing a lot of new assessments coming out from the US and other countries where. They're people who do have a knowledge of the Arctic, but they're relying, they don't have the Chinese language skills. And so it's quite risky if you're just relying on English sources. So just this week, I noticed something that appeared in the national interest 
that came out of a Heritage Foundation study or two studies. And the, the initial study was comparing Russia and China's interests in the Arctic and what the US should do. And then the subsequent study was about the importance of Svalbard. Within that study, I found that um, one of the authors had, was claiming that China had eight research stations in the Arctic. And I was pretty surprised because I hadn't come across that myself. Uh, I recognise um, that there, there's one in Svalbard, uh, which is the Norwegian Territory, and then there's another shared uh, base in Iceland, and then there's a floating, floating ice load station that China sets up annually, as Russia does. And so when I looked a bit further uh, into that report that appeared in the National Interest, um, the author shared that he'd got that information out of something that appeared in People's Daily, which had originally published in China Radio International, and it was only in English. And what I could see was it was a translation error, and that the original in Chinese just says that China has one base and that there are eight other national programs or stations at Svalbard. So this is a real risk, is it actually takes quite a lot of work to, to understand what China's up to in the Arctic. And so I really urge the governments who are trying to work that out to bring in the China language uh, specialists who also know, have a knowledge about the party state system and pair them with your Russia specialists, pair them with your Arctic specialists, because you need a joint effort to understand this. Very good advice. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the Arctic Council, which, of course, is the leading uh, forum for cooperation in the Arctic uh, among the governments that uh, actually border the Arctic. And, and China is an observer, not a member. I understand that the Arctic Council is primarily focused on uh, sustainable development, environmental protection. I'm not sure if security is a focus, but maybe you can talk a little bit about what role China is currently playing on the Arctic Council and what its uh, influence might be. Yeah, well, the Arctic Council basically, like a lot of organizations, international organizations, it cooperates on the things that can be cooperated on in the Arctic. So there's a lot of things that can't be cooperated on and they won't talk about it. So security is one of them. And, you know, if you think back to 30 years ago, the Arctic was where the US and the Soviet Union were, you know, headbutting. And it was the Arctic, remember um, those famous meetings in Reykjavik with the last the negotiations that, that led to the dismantling of the nuclear weapons programs between the US and the Soviet Union. There's a deep desire for peace amongst countries in, in the Arctic, as there is in Europe, because of that heritage. And that's the hard thing is for, for everybody, is that history is repeating. And there's kind of a weariness about that. And the Arctic Council is not the forum to deal with these um, strategic tensions. And I think, you know, earlier this year, uh, your Secretary of State, uh, Mike Pompeo, was speaking about some of the challenges and I'm not sure he got a good reception and this is at Ravanami in, in Finland. You know, these matters need to be talked about, that Russia's, Russia's resurgence of military um, presence in the Arctic and China's ever-growing strategic interest in the region, but how to do so is, I think, one of the big challenges, and how to get the other Arctic states on board and, and be on the same plate about this. You think about Iceland, for example. Iceland used to have a U.S. airbase. In fact, that's their main, Keflavik, that's their main international airport. And in 2006, the U.S. just pulled all that out, which had a big impact on their economy. And then in 2008, Iceland 
had a hard hit from the financial crisis because of their banks, some of their entrepreneurial banks that really uh, caused great damage to their economy. And when they asked for help from the US and from the EU, um, they just got tough luck. And, uh, you know, you made your bed, you lie on it. So Iceland's really leaned into China. So you have to be able to, to you've got to know that history to know why they're not as um, concerned or looking in the same direction as, as the US might be about concerns in the Arctic. I'm interested in the extent to which Russia and China are working together to advance uh, shared objectives uh, in the Arctic. China is apparently a major investor in an expansive LNG project that's located in Russia's uh, Yamal Peninsula. Uh, The two countries are collaborating on joint infrastructure development to open up Arctic shipping routes. So how do you see this cooperation evolving? And is this something that needs to be prioritized more when people are looking at uh, the Arctic and growing Russian-Chinese military cooperation in general? Yes, the Russia-China cooperation definitely does seem to be expanding uh, on, on multiple platforms from propaganda and messaging to uh, collaboration on Belt Road initiatives, Oh, and they already have had military exercises together since 2005. But then, you know, there's also that history um, where of a relationship that went very bad, and there is a lot of mistrust on the Russian side because Russia is very, very protective about its Arctic sovereignty, and they're a bit worried about large numbers of Chinese population in Siberia, for example. And we just saw there was a great uh, article, again, mentioning China Brief Jamestown, about how Russia's response to COVID-19, which was where they have banned all Chinese passport holders, except for people on business visas from visiting Russia. So not just whether you've been infected or you might be a Chinese passport holder not living in mainland China, they've just banned Chinese passport holders outright. And the Chinese embassy in Moscow has registered some complaints about some some related matters to do with that. So that's a, I think that's a bit of a burr in the saddle. But Russia, you know, Russia's reaction is not much different from what uh, North Korea did either. And uh, Mongolia has also been quite careful. And lots of 63, more than 63 countries have closed their borders to China. So I don't think that that will cause a major change in the general tra- trajectory that's been going on for a while of ever-increasing Russia-China cooperation. And that's the worst-case scenario. You know, you do not want to be the, have two lined up against the, the third in this old strategic triangle scenario that's repeating itself. You talked about the importance of distinguishing between Chinese language-written uh, material on the Arctic and, of course, other issues as well and English uh, language materials. I I wonder if you could talk a bit about what the difference is in the Arctic. What are the Chinese being transparent about? What are they being less transparent about? How are they trying to shape the narrative about Chinese involvement in the Arctic? Well, the focus in the materials aimed at foreigners is about China's economic 
activities in the Arctic. So the shipping route is one that's had a big push. In fact, there haven't been that many Chinese uh, cargo shipments through the Arctic, but there's been a lot of talk about it. And I've written in my research to say that I think that that is it's part of having China's got had a whole range of activities that they've got involved in. Every whenever it was possible to have China sit at the table of whatever Arctic-related discussion, they have been there since 2009. So it's part of developing what the, they call the and the right to speak on Arctic affairs, and um, to be taken as a legitimate player. So quite a few Arctic commentators have been uh, critical of China calling itself a near-Arctic state, but because their level of involvement in the Arctic from tourism to investment to the the shipping you know, mining has and participation in the Arctic Council as an observer and being having scientists um, being involved in so many of their groups associated with the Arctic Council that means that China is now accepted as a as a legitimate stakeholder in Arctic affairs fishing is another activity that they engage in in the North Pacific but there was a long time where China would not rule out the possibility of taking up uh, Arctic Ocean fishing, and whereas the other states wanted a moratorium on it. So that's the, the messaging is about China's economic interest in the region and China's scientific uh, engagement in the region. Of course, those are all they actually are happening, but it's missing those three core components that I talked about: the interest in uh, security, important role of security, and these are in order, these three categories, security, resources, and strategic science. Um, but to achieve those three agenda points, China needs to have positive relations with the eight Arctic nations and needs to be accepted as a legitimate stakeholder. It needs to be welcome at all the various governance bodies that discuss the Arctic. What are the policies that you would recommend uh, the United States and the other Arctic Council member states take to respond to China's growing presence and interest in the region? Well, my standard advice would be, because each country has different interests related to the Arctic, is do your own assessment. Make sure you have Chinese language speakers with security clearance who understand the party state system as part of your team who are going to do that assessment do your own assessment, draw on the good research that's been done and then come up with a resilient strategy because, um, you know, no one's going to be able to exclude China from the Arctic or any other part of the world. So how can it, how can it be possible to engage with the positive aspects of China's involvement in the Arctic region and what are the risks and concerns and how do you deal with those? And I think each country is going to have a different idea about that because of different national interests. But they also could be, you know, the NATO states will have a particular position on it that is probably, I mean, it should be a shared one. And so that needs to be um, another kind of study separate from the individual national strategy. So I hope that all of our listeners will read Dr. Anne-Marie Brady's book and her really terrific Jamestown uh, China Brief article and other publications relating to the Arctic and other China issues. Another topic, of course, that you published on widely, Anne-Marie, has been on Chinese uh, political influence, United Front Operations, which has had, uh, I think, enormous 
impact in many countries. So we are all very grateful to you for your for your work in, in Chinese. And uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. We've been talking with Dr. Anne-Marie Brady, who's a professor at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. Thanks again. Thanks, Bonnie. It's been a real privilege and a pleasure talking with you too.